Hey there, everybody. We are so glad you joined us today. No matter what you've had going on this week, we are so glad you're here and you are welcome here because at Menlo Church, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. We hope you'll enjoy the message. Let's take a look. Well, greetings to everyone listening today at each of the Menlo Church campuses, as well as those of you who are listening online. My name is Abby Odio, and it is truly, truly a joy to be with you. I currently serve as a pastor up in the Seattle area, but Menlo Church is and always will be a very special place for me. I had the privilege of serving on staff here for nearly eight years, uh, so coming here is always like coming home. We had a son about a year and a half ago. Uh, his name is Mark. After which point we re relocated up to the Pacific Northwest. So it's been about a year since I've been here. It's also been about a year since I've seen the sun. But in all seriousness, uh, coming back to Menlo is like coming home. Uh, truly grateful to be back. So you are all in the midst of a series entertaining the question, what does it look like to live a well-designed life? And as we consider this question, one of the necessary sort of foundational truths, one of the axioms that we all experience, but it's worth naming, is this. Our lives are not lived in a vacuum. Our lives are not lived in a vacuum. In other words, how we choose to design our life, how we choose to live our story will have impact, will have ripple effects beyond us. It's just the way the world works. It's interesting, this notion that our lives have influence, for better or worse, is something that we learned from a very young age. I mentioned I have a young son, he's almost two years old, his name is Mark, and uh, this summer we attended a get-together with some family members and one of his aunties actually taught him how to throw a punch, like taught him the art of a right hook. I told this particular auntie to go ahead and start having children so we could return the favor. Um, but he's little, so you know this was all kind of fun and games, until later that week when we're at home and I'm sitting with him on my lap, it's just he and I, and he applies this newfound skill to his mother's left cheek. Now, it was hardly painful, but it was sort of shocking, you know, so I reacted, and little Mark read the look on my face. He took note of my reaction, and he knew almost instantaneously that what he had done had caused me harm. And as this registered, his frame sort of crumpled, and he began to cry, saying, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. And I looked at him and I said, uh-oh is right, little man. But in that moment, I was struck by the connections that his mind is already beginning to make. Mark is learning that his actions have impact beyond himself, that his little story and how he chooses to live out that little story will have repercussions for better or worse 
in the world around him. Now clearly he's learning this lesson very slowly because the very next week he did the same thing, thankfully to his father this time, but that's besides the point. The point is, we learned very early that by design our lives are interconnected. That means they're inevitably relational. It makes sense then that when Jesus sort of sums up the heart of his teaching in uh, John chapter 15, the essence of that instruction is relational. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, as you seek to follow Jesus, as we seek to follow Jesus, our central calling is this, design a life whereby your influence might be summed by a single word, a word that is more a verb than it is a noun, more an action than it is a feeling. Design a life in which your impact, your influence is love. Now on the surface, this instruction seems easy enough, like be more loving, got it, I've heard this sermon before. But if we pause for a moment to take inventory of sort of the turbulent reality of our present day, we quickly understand that this command to love, while perhaps simple, is certainly, certainly not easy. We live in a day, we all know, of great political divisiveness that is wrecking families, it's wrecking faith communities. We live in a day of great systematic injustice where evils like racism and classism go unchecked. We live in a day where we've found the people who sort of think like us and talk like us, often they look like us. And we stick close to them, sometimes even convincing ourselves that by being in that tribe, we're doing the thing that Jesus commanded us to do, that we're, we're loving. And we do this, I do this, because it's comfortable. It's much easier, it's much more attractive to design a comfortable life than it is to design a loving life. But unfortunately, comfort was never the primary calling. That brings us to this small but powerful book in the Old Testament where one of the most understated characters in all of scripture profoundly exemplifies the heart and the impact of this calling. The name of this character is Ruth and her story has much guidance to offer us as we consider the design of our own stories. So Ruth is a young woman in the Bible. She's born and she's raised in a place called Moab at a time when the values of culture did little to reflect the themes of love and unity so near to God's heart. The opening verse of the book of Ruth says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Now these words reveal to us something important about that particular era. See, the time of the judges was a real low point in Israel's history, um, a time when the nation of Israel is increasingly divided a time where Israel's customs and cultural mores are crumbling through cycles of partisanship and division and poor leadership. The days that the judges ruled represented a time of increasing family tension, where differences were dividing households. It was a time of intense tribalism brought about in part by loneliness, individuality, and corruption. It was a time when the pursuit of wealth and status and fame and importance was just what you did. These were the gold standards around which a person designed a life. 
And all of this sort of gets ciphered into a reoccurring phrase that is the very last line of the book of Judges. It says this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a good thing times have changed, huh? But of course, we know the truth is that they haven't. So let's keep reading with Ruth's story. There's an important character in Ruth's life, a woman named Naomi. Naomi is originally from Bethlehem, but she came to Moab some 10 years ago with her husband and her two sons. This is sort of the backstory of the book of Ruth, and in the first chapter, tragedy strikes, and Naomi's husband, as well as both of her sons, die. And so this character, Naomi, she is um, left in a severely vulnerable situation. She's stripped of every male attachment that gave her worth, protection, and security in the ancient world. So understandably, Naomi decides to return to her original home in Bethlehem, the only place that she knows she'll have a chance at survival. Well, now enters our character, Ruth. Uh, Ruth was married to one of Naomi's sons who has died. However, unlike Naomi, Ruth is not from Bethlehem in Judah. Ruth is a Moabite. Nonetheless, when Naomi decides to return home, both Ruth and Orpah, the other widowed daughter-in-law, say, we'll go with you, and they do initially. But after traveling some distance, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, go back home to Moab. And she insists on this by saying, even if there was still hope for me. In other words, Naomi is at a place in her life where she is convinced there is no hope for her. So Orpah takes Naomi up on the offer. She kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and heads home. But Ruth, Ruth assumes a different posture. The text tells us, but Ruth clung to her. That word clung is really important. The Hebrew word here is debak, and it's a verb that translates to be joined together, to cling to, to keep close to. This is the same uh, verb that is used in Genesis 2 uh, when God declares a man shall leave his parents and cling to the woman and they shall become one flesh. Notice that word doesn't just imply a closeness, it implies a oneness, a coming together. And so the first truth we learned from Ruth about the well-designed life is that it clings to spaces of perceived hopelessness. It clings to places of perceived hopelessness. It enters into them, it becomes one with them. Notice in this moment, Ruth does not have all the answers. She does not know how to fix Naomi's predicament. She has no clue what they'll encounter when they get to Moab. But what she does know, what she is relentlessly committed to is the truth that redemption and hope in the human story always begins with debauch, always begins with clinging, always begins with becoming one with. This is why in the very first chapters of John's Gospel, a story that's about the redemption of humankind, that book begins with the words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see that connection? Jesus clung to us, Jesus loved us by becoming one with us. The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that we tend to think of giving, this action of giving, as something 
that we offer occasionally to another person, like a gift here, a donation there. But Bonhoeffer argues instead that giving is actually primarily relational. It's the relationship that we share with one another. It's the elemental desire to transform isolation and self-centeredness into connection and caring. In other words, it's about showing up with a friend to their chemo appointment. It's about learning how injustice rears its ugly head in your neighborhood and then standing with, becoming one with the most vulnerable. It's about asking someone you know who's struggling with anxiety, how are you feeling right now? And then having the patience to sit and just listen. And friends, part of the tragedy, part of the challenge of the human story is that so often we design our lives driven not by the question, to whom can I cling, to whom can I stand with, but rather, how can I stand out? A writer by the name of David Brooks recently came out with a book called The Second Mountain. And the thesis of this book is that a, personally, a person generally has two mountains in their lives. The first mountain uh, is, tends to be about sort of the normal goals that our culture endorses. To be perceived as successful, to get invited to the right parties, to have all the nice stuff, nice food, nice family, nice vacations. And then, Brooks writes, usually a shift happens in a person's life. Usually it's because of a diagnosis, a job loss, a divorce. Something um, that Brooks claims really breaks open a deeper part of ourselves that we've been neglecting. He calls it a valley. Some of you, you know this valley. Some of you are in this valley in this moment. And Brooks notes, as we begin this long climb out of that valley, ever so slowly, our posture, our decisions, our politics, our life design, all of that, it's driven less by ego and more by a rich and weathered empathy that puts others above ourselves. In other words, we learn to cling to instead of run from perceived areas of hopelessness. So Ruth's story invites us in this moment, today, to consider that question, to whom do we cling? How are we designing a life in which relational giving is our primary expression of love? Who do we stand with? Who do we become one with? With that in mind, we move to a second profound reality we see in Ruth's story, which is this. A well-designed life will always call us to take meaningful risk in the name of love. See, returning to the story, we see that after clinging to Naomi, Ruth makes this beautiful proclamation to her. She says this, she says, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. Now it's important to pause and acknowledge what it is that Ruth is committing to in this moment. And to do that, we need some context. This relocation, it wasn't benign. It wasn't like moving from the peninsula to the East Bay, or even from Northern California to Southern California. 
Ruth's people, the Moabites, the people, and the people of Judah, which is where Bethlehem was located, they had a long and hateful history towards one another, which goes back to the time of Abraham. Some of you will remember Abraham and his nephew Lot. They're important characters in the biblical narrative. In uh, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to take his family and to live out this grand mission of revealing God's redemption to the world. But shortly into this great mission, there's conflict between Abraham and Lot having to do with sheep. That's right, sheep. And in a matter of a single chapter, God's people are divided. Abraham goes left, Lot goes right. And Lot ends up fathering a son through an incestuous relationship with his daughter. You can read all about that family drama in Genesis 19. But the name of Lot's son will sound familiar. That's right, it's Moab. Remember, Ruth is from the line of Moab. She is a descendant of Lot's people. Meanwhile, Abraham's descendants become the people of Israel, the very same people who are now living in Bethlehem. And scripture tells us there was no love lost between these two groups. 1,000 years after this family split, the hate is deep and it's hostile. In the book of Numbers, we read where the Moabites launched curses at the wandering Israelites. In Deuteronomy, it's noted that the Moabites were not to be included in the Israelite worshiping assembly. All of this, all of this, means that Ruth is not just leaving her people to go be adopted into Naomi's life. She is entering territory that will leave her exposed and vulnerable. Moabites did not move to Bethlehem. Simply put, this is a courageous and risky act of love. It will require she give something of herself, her comfort, her image, potentially even her future, in order to go, in order to love Naomi well. I'll unfortunately never forget the terribly awkward uh, moment in our relationship where my now husband Sam and I first told one another that we loved each other. We were sitting on a couch at my apartment, and I said to Sam, I have something I want to tell you, uh, but it feels risky and I'm nervous. And I was hoping this comment would kind of prompt him, would kind of hint him um, that, you know, I was gonna say this thing and that then maybe he would say it first, and then I could say it back, and I wouldn't feel like I was risking all that much. But he didn't, he didn't take the hint. And so I worked up the courage and I said, uh, you know, Sam, I love you. And I wanna let you know, here's what that means to me. And um, the love of my life looked at me and he said one word, he said, thanks. And then he let the suspense linger for a few hours before calling me on my way home to say that indeed he felt the same way, at which point I informed him that I had since changed my mind. But you get the point of the illustration. Love, real love, by its nature is risky. Like Ruth, it puts us in a position where we're exposed, where we open ourselves up to increasing risk. We become a Moabite in Bethlehem. And Ruth's example raises this question for us, as we design our life, where are we taking such risks? I have to tell you, as I considered this notion this week, I was deeply convicted. 
how easy it is for me to hear statistics like there are 21 million people living in modern-day slavery. That's more than the populations of London, New York, and Los Angeles combined. Right now, in this moment, enslaved against their will. How easy it is for me to hear statistics like that without asking how my own consumption and spending patterns actually keep that industry afloat. It's risky. You see, to acknowledge that reality and to enter into it lovingly means that I may have to give something, change something. I may have to spend my money differently. I may have to live differently. How easy it is for me to see a lonely person on our street without engaging that person in conversation, something as simple as asking them their name. It's risky. I may have to give up 10 minutes of my day. I may have to participate in an awkward conversation. How easy it is for me to mourn the reality of racism without ever asking hard questions about how my own privilege might be implicitly part of the problem. It's risky. It means I may have to step outside of the safety of my pride and defenses. I may have to concede that I am part of a broken system that actually benefits me. But friends, this is where risky love calls us to go. Now, keeping that in mind, one of the profound and important realities we observe in this little story is that as Ruth takes steps of risky love towards the other, as she moves into this unsettling, unknown territory, Ruth finds that she herself is mysteriously cared for, cared about, held. As the story continues, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem. It's at the beginning of barley season. That's good news. It means there was no famine in the land. Ruth goes to the fields of a wealthy man named Boaz and gathers the grains left behind by the harvesters. This act was called gleaning, and it was part of Israelite law that reapers leave behind part of their crop for the poor. The workers in Boaz's field follow this law, and because of that, Ruth and Naomi are able to eat. Then Boaz uh, takes notice of Ruth. He offers her additional protection from anyone who would cause her harm. From there, Ruth and Naomi secure a plan for Ruth to get married to Boaz that involves Ruth going and lying at the feet of Boaz after he's had an evening of food and drink. As you design your own life, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this. One biblical scholar said, there's no way to know what is going on with the feet in this encounter. I'm convinced that biblical scholar must be Catholic. I won't say too much except that feet are a euphemism in Hebrew culture for something else which makes this an unquestionably intimate encounter. And over time, thanks to Naomi's wise friendship and counsel, Ruth marries Boaz and they have a baby together. And this is important because Ruth's future is now secure. Whereas before there was only vulnerability, unknowns, and risks. In Ruth chapter two, after Boaz's initial act of kindness, Naomi wisely sums up God's posture towards them, saying, blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now that word here that's translated as kindness is a really important word. 
In Hebrew, the word is hesed, and it means a loyal, enduring, relentlessly committed love. A kindness that chases down, a kindness that never gives up, a love that you cannot escape even if you tried. Now why does that matter? Hear this important detail in the story. As Ruth moves away from her homeland, away from the comfort and the predictability towards Naomi with this risky and vulnerable love, God is all the while moving towards Ruth, holding Ruth in the truest, purest expression of that love. The world recently lost a great author, uh, Toni Morrison, and in one of her novels called Paradise, Morrison prophetically describes love this way. She writes, love is divine only and difficult always. If you think it is easy, you are a fool. If you think it is natural, you are blind. It is a learned application without reason or motives, except that it is God. In other words, we can only do the hard and risky work of loving well because of the divine because of the hased, because we have a source of love that uh, we do not have to internally manufacture. And friends, in a similar way, what we find is we cling to areas of perceived hopelessness with this risky love that we're called to as we design a life after that, letting go of our ego, our need for comfort. We find that we are actually pursued by the same hased. We learn to trust that, to live in it, to accept it. We learn that those things which we thought were the source of life, our image, our privilege, our security, they were just prisons all along. But now as I risk, as I stumble, as I take steps towards the other in love, I find I myself am mysteriously cared for, cared about, secure. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he offered that mysterious little phrase, those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. When I was in college, I spent a summer working at a camp for students with uh, various physical and intellectual disabilities. And one of my roles that summer was to help our campers through a high ropes course, which if you're unfamiliar is like an obstacle course 40 feet above the ground. And as our campers would work through uh, this course, they were always wearing a full harness, always securely attached to a cable so that even if they fell or slipped, which happened somewhat often, uh, they would be caught. And I'll never forget this one girl, her name was actually Abby, which is probably why I remember. Um, but Abby showed up and she was afraid. She didn't want to go through the course. For her, it was not worth the risk. And so I watched as one of her adult leaders kind of came alongside her and uh, explained to her how this all worked. And then she held up the rope and she said to Abby, you are attached. Like, no matter what happens, you can't fall because this rope will catch you. And after a few of these sort of pep talks, Abby finally worked up the courage and she started moving through the course. And with each step that she took, she reminded herself of those words. She'd say to herself, I'm attached, I'm attached, I'm attached. Then she came to the, the end of the course, which 
was kind of the section where I was and there were logs that were separated that you had to walk across and she started out across the logs. I'm attached, I'm attached. Then she came to the um, very last log and her foot slipped and she immediately let out this like shriek of fear but then the ropes did what they were supposed to do. They caught her, and all of a sudden, Abby looked up at all of us, and in this very confident, very joyful, very different tone, she announced, I'm attached. Like, she'd mostly believed it, but she really didn't believe it until the moment she needed it, until she was caught. And I love that story because it so gets at Ruth's experience. It so illustrates the life God is calling you and I to live, to take risky steps of love, and as we do, we realize what was true all along, but we never learned in a place of comfort, I'm attached, I'm attached. There is a said, there is a love that so defines and holds my life that I need not be afraid, and I will actually know God in a way I didn't before as I take steps of meaningful risk. So that brings us to our third and final point. A well-designed life clings to what is seemingly hopeless. It enters hopeless spaces with risky love, and we'll close with this. A well-designed life transforms the world. I wanna take a moment and sort of zoom out of this story of Ruth. We've been reading Ruth like it's an encouraging little sort of anecdote about a rather ordinary family living a rather ordinary ancient life. There's tragedy, there's uh, famine, there's movement, it's all there. But at the very end of this story, the narrator moves from an on-the-ground view of events to a sort of 35,000-foot view of what's happening here of how this person, Ruth, is actually a critical turning point in the entire story of God's plan to redeem the world. As the book ends, you get this little two-verse genealogy that says, in essence, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, Jesse of David. Now, you'll remember we talked about the drama between Abraham and Lot that happened way back in Genesis. It divided God's people. And Ruth is a descendant of Lot. Her people, the Moabites and the Israelites, were enemies. This means that when Ruth returns to Bethlehem, to Israel with Naomi, and when Ruth marries Boaz and has a child named Obed, at the sort of 35,000 foot view, this is actually the first time in 1,000 years of biblical history that Lot's tribe and Abraham's tribe are reunited. In other words, through Ruth's act of clinging to Naomi and through her risky act of love that led her into this unknown territory, what you thought was just a small story about the courage of two widowed refugees was actually the story of how two widowed refugees united the entire Israelite nation, was actually the story of transformation on a worldwide scale. See, if we go back to the story of Abraham in Genesis 12, the word that is used to describe their division is the little Hebrew verb, verb parad. It means to separate. Parad gets used only one time in Ruth's story, and it's in those beautiful words she speaks to Naomi when she says, where you die, I will die. May the Lord do thus to me and more if death separates, if death parads us. That's the verb. Here's the point. 
For a thousand years between Abraham and Ruth, things were not right among God's people. God's people were detached from their story of hope and redemption. But now, get this, because of Ruth, things are finally back on track. No longer is there parade. No longer is there detachment. Now comes Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, Jesse of David. A family line which, in another thousand years into the future, will give birth to a baby in the same town called Bethlehem to another family on the run for their survival. Mary and Joseph, and his name will be Jesus. See, I imagine that Ruth did not know on that day by clinging to her in-law and refusing to parade that she was becoming the centerpiece of God's unfolding story in the world. I imagine that Ruth did not know her risky and faithful love of Naomi actually was the beginning of reconciling a 1,000-year-old feud from the past and the beginning of a new lineage, a new story that would change the world. I imagine instead that Ruth saw Naomi in her suffering and knew she needed someone to hold her close, to be one with her, to remind her she was not alone. I imagine Ruth was just doing the faithful thing, the humane thing, the loving thing, that was right in front of her on that day in that moment. And then I think about all of you and I think about this question that stands before the church. How will we design our lives? If you're like me, in the overwhelming parade, the overwhelming division and separation of the world we live in, it's tempting to think our own lives of faith don't matter all that much that we can hardly influence history in a hopeful direction as we design our story. Or it's tempting to think that in this wild and wonderful part of the world that is the Silicon Valley, that only great and brilliant and innovative gestures count for anything. That the people we love or don't love, the family we accept or don't accept, the struggles of humanity we see or don't see, it won't really matter in the end. But if Ruth teaches us anything, if she shows us anything, it's that ordinary people making ordinary decisions are the ones who transform history. That if these two refugee women, who were widows no less, could design a life of impact, then so can you, and friends, so can I, and this is what we are called to do. Maybe this week you're called to love someone with a small act of risky love, to cling to them, to show up for them, to call them on the phone, to reach out to an estranged relative, to stand humbly with someone in their suffering, to extend hospitality and invitation to a stranger. And who knows? Maybe that small act of human kindness and love, the one that's right in front of you, maybe that action will get swept up into this much larger story of transformation that God is writing in the world. And maybe, just maybe, thousands of lives being designed here within the community that is in Menlo Church will create together a ripple effect that echoes tones of redemption into all of eternity. Friends, may we be set on that end. May our love be risky enough to pursue it. God, help us design that life.
Well, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that this message blessed you, challenged you, inspired you to live differently this week as a follower of Jesus. And we hope you'll come back next week and join us again. And in the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media. Have a great week.